Hi, you're listening to Trustees Without Borders, a podcast production of the Virginia Tech Institute for Policy and Governance. I'm your host, Andy Morikawa, coming to you from the IPG studio on the campus of Virginia Tech. Joining me are the interviewers for today's show, Sarah Lyon-Hill, Netta Moyarian, and Courtney Sermonek. Sarah, Netta, and Courtney, would you please introduce yourselves to our listeners? Hi, I'm Sarah Lyon-Hill. I was previously a PhD student in the Planning, Governance, and Globalization um, PhD program, uh, and now I work full-time at the Virginia Tech Office of Economic Development. Glad to be here. Thank you. Hi, uh, I'm Neda Mariyam. Thanks, Andy, for your introduction. Uh, like Sarah, I was a PhD in Planning, Governance, and Globalization program. Uh, now I work at Office of Economic Development and Institute for Policy and Governance. I've been a member of um, CCC, Community Change Collaborative, for five years now. Hi, I'm Courtney Sermonek. I'm a theater maker, a dreamer, and a laugher. And right now I'm really privileged to be studying in Virginia Tech's Theater Directing and Public Dialogue Program and their Urban and Regional Planning Program. Thank you, guys. Today's program features Brandy and Carlton Turner. Brandy and Carlton Turner are with us digitally over the next couple of days to speak about their use of the arts and agriculture to support rural community, cultural, and economic development in their hometown of Utica, Mississippi, through the Mississippi Center for Cultural Production, otherwise known as SIP Culture. They're leaders in a new research project that investigates how creative approaches to community development may tackle the problem of access to healthy food in Utica a low-income and moderate-income, predominantly Black rural community in Mississippi. Their research project will consider how a more expansive imagination of future community well-being can change the narrative of what's possible and build collective community agency in the broader food access and healthy community development initiative Assistant Director and Program Manager of SIP Culture, Brandy Turner, is also co-owner and Managing Director of TWA Consulting, a firm that provides services in creative consulting for organizations looking to strengthen their work in arts and culture. Founding Director of SIP Culture, Carlton Turner, is a performing artist, arts advocate, policy shaper, lecturer, consultant, and facilitator. Mr. Turner is also co-founder and co-artistic director, along with his brother Maurice Turner, of the group Mugabe, the acronym for Men Under Guidance Acting Before Early Extinction, a Mississippi-based performing arts group that blends of jazz, hip-hop, spoken word poetry, and soul music together with non-traditional storytelling. He's the former executive director of Alternate Roots. He's a 2018 Ford Foundation Art of Change Fellow and a Cultural Policy Fellow at the Creative Placemaking Institute at Arizona State University's Herberger Institute for Design in the Arts. Brandy and Carlton Turner, welcome to the Trustees Without Borders podcast. It's great to have you with us on the show. Thank you so much, it's great to be here. Thank you, thank you for having us. And now I'll turn it over to Courtney Sermonite. Courtney? Great, so our first question is adapted from or inspired by a podcast I listened to called On Being. Um, it's hosted by Krista Tippett. And the question that she begins with, uh, I'm adopting from, so it's um, I'm curious what what you would speak to is the creative background of your childhood. Um, so <clears throat> for me, um, my parents are, uh, were born and raised in Detroit, Michigan. And um, right after I was born, they moved down south to New Orleans, Louisiana. 
and um, and it is a place that um, is just bubbling with creativity. And so for um, it was, you know, I grew up being exposed to visual arts. Um, I was raised on the campus of Xavier University, um, always involved in um, in dance as a little girl, and um, kind of always around people in an environment that were that had conversations about what was going on um, at the university in our community alike. And so um, when I think of my childhood, it's it's always about creativity. Um, a, a fond memory from my childhood was spending Saturdays with my mother going to um, one of the local sewing stores to pick out fabrics and thread and you know running around down the aisles and on um, on the fabric on the floor of the fabric store and um, that was something that my mother used to do regularly with me. Um, I was her buddy in going to uh, the fabric store where she'd bring home fabrics and um, and and make things. Um, she even made made jewelry, and it was like um, a means for like a supplemental income that she could do while being home and taking care of her family. So um, for me, that is part of just a, a creative piece of my background, um, and that's something that just carried on until I moved to Mississippi. Um, my creative, uh, my childhood creativity, um, um, also the, the memories are of Saturday mornings. Um, my father's from Harlem, um, Harlem, New York, and uh, he and my mother met in Mount Vernon, New York uh, in the late 60s, uh, I think 67, 68. Uh, and uh, my father, um, he was Harlem. You know, he, he embodied the jazz, uh, the um, uptown just the whole vibe, he was a socialite. Uh, and um, shortly after I was born, um, we moved to Mississippi, uh, to the community where my mother was from and my mother's family has been for eight generations. Uh, and um, my father uh, kind of, he, he was the impetus behind the move. He was uh, actually trying to move his family out of New York and, and into, um, into the South, you know, he passed before I could really ask him the reasons for that. Uh, but I imagine it had something to do with the fact that he was working on the ground in the community uh, and kind of saw the, the shifts and changes that were beginning to come in the mid seventies and the eighties in terms of the, the urban decay that was beginning to, uh, to happen. Um, but on Saturday mornings in Utica, Mississippi, um, he would sit us down and uh, after we would finish watching cartoons and, and watching Kung Fu theater, uh, we would we would have to do two things. We would have to clean the house. That meant polishing all the furniture and, and cleaning all the windows. Um, and we would also have to sit and listen to him play his favorite jazz records. Uh, and so every Saturday we got this history lesson in uh, Dave Brubeck and the Jazz Messengers and Thelonious Monk and Charlie Parker and all the Miles Davis and, and Nina Simone. And then uh, on Sundays, um, my father was a singer. And so on Sundays, we would go to church and we would sing in the church choir. And my father um, had this beautiful, dark baritone voice. Uh, and so we just were immersed in that. And, uh, and so that kind of like infused us with this really deep respect and love for uh, diverse music. And growing up a kid of the hip hop generation, all of those things kind of fused together, playing in the high school band, um, you know, listening to jazz, listening to hip hop. Um, we we um, eventually be, began to create our own sound and style out of all of those amalgamation of, of, of different influences. Well, I guess we're kind of going into what SIP culture is. Could you guys describe SIP culture's history and kind of the unique approach that you've taken to manifest social change in your in your community? Well, I would say that um, SIP culture. Is a growth is a growth out of frustration um, in, in in a way. Um, I come from a, um, a family of educators, so my mother taught for forty years, um, taught in both Mississippi public school systems, New York uh, school systems, um, and um, both of my both my sisters. I have two younger sisters. Uh, they are both teachers um, and have been teaching all of their adult lives. Uh, both of their husbands are teachers. Um, my first cousin that lives next door is a teacher. 
Um, my brother was a teacher. Um, my wife has worked at the, at the high school. Um, you know, my, me and my brother work as, as teaching artists. So we've spent a lot of time in the education system. Uh, and um, we realized very early on, uh, coming into adulthood, that the quality of education that was being provided to our children and to our community um, was intended and designed to, uh, to keep a permanent second class. Uh, and that that was connected to the histories of, of, of slavery, of, of Jim Crow, of sharecropping. Uh, and, and so the education that, that our communities are being provided with, specifically when I say our, I'm speaking of the African-American communities in, in Mississippi, um, are to continue to uh, keep that secondary class of citizenship. Uh, and so we realized that our um, education system was not doing the job that it needed to do in order for our children to be prepared for the 21st century uh, and for developing a different type of future that is sustainable and in uh, right relationship with the earth. Um, and so we began thinking about what does it mean to uh, develop a, um, a different type of educational approach for our young people and for our community uh, and what that might look like if we approach that from the things that we knew, which were um, growing up with this cultural sensitivity uh, and cultural uh, awareness about how, uh, how powerful art is um, and its role in our everyday function. Uh, and then the role, the, the kind of primary role of, of food um, coming from also a history of, of, of growers, of agriculturalists. Um, and um, environmentalists before that name was even sexy. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and what those, that combined curriculum of agriculture and, and, and culture, what we could do in, in framing an entire educational uh, framework around uh, those two spaces. And so SIP culture grew because we thought about that and we thought about creating a school, but then we realized that um, an educational approach uh, and a school approach only um, mainly impacts young people, but the problems and the challenges that we have as a community are actually intergenerational and they require an intergenerational approach. And so SIP culture evolved uh, a, into a space in which we can engage in an intercultural, um, multi-generational exchange around food and story um, uh, and, and begin to build a community awareness and framework for um, community development from that intercultural, uh, multi-generational approach. I think also, and just to add on to what Carlton was saying about food and story, um, is that that is something that we as humans, um, we share. And so it was really trying to find something that we, we have in common. And I don't, I, I, actually I'll change it, not say find something, is, um, is put emphasis on it and use that as our connectivity. Uh, so you mentioned food stories and education as a way to um, combat structural limitations, to help people become aware of their own power, and maybe to collaborate for shared goals, right? Um, my question is how SIP culture is moving toward nurturing empathy among people and to whom should this empathy be raised? To what extent this empathy should be raised? So, yeah, let me um, just back up a little bit and address, I, I don't know that I addressed those, those uh, previous questions in, in a full sense, so I just want, I'll take all three of those questions. Um, so I think the role of SIP culture in combating structural limitations uh, are about challenging this idea of, of both American exceptionalism uh, as this idea of white male patriarchy, uh, as well as um, this idea of individualism, which is a capitalist framework that promotes an individual's rise as success. So if an individual can succeed and, and break out of whatever limitations are um, they are bound to within their community or within their, their, their ethnic group or within their, um, their economic class, then that shows that the experiment of American capitalism is working if an individual can, can move out of that and, and you know, move up the ladder of whatever you know, we call the hierarchy or class structure. Um, but, the frame, but, but what happens if your community 
is, is perpetually and continually stuck in the same type of cycle of poverty, of, of disenfranchisement, of um, poor economic uh, wealth, of, of poor health, um, then actually you're not, the, the, the circumstances of the community hasn't changed even if one individual can escape. Uh, and so we challenge the idea uh, of individualism and think about collectivity, uh, think about um, you know, cooperative economics, think about what does it mean to, to be in management of our community resources and skills as a pool that helps to, to truly lift all of us um, into a different uh, community way of being. And so that's really important for us. In terms of, of, of you know, the way that we do that is to help create civic and social spaces. Um, part of the challenge of our community is that we live in a rural area that over the past 30 to 40 years um, has shifted from a center of production to a center of, of consumer uh, and consumption, consumerism. And so um, all of, the, uh, all of the, the production qualities and, and institutions have been extracted. And those, uh, those institutions also served as social spaces spaces for a community to connect, to, to build, to relate, to, to, to uh, conspire together about what they want to change in their community. Um, and with those institutions being kind of like demolished, um, those spaces no longer exist. And so what we're trying to do is to supplement and create more social and civic spaces for community to just get to know each other again and be able to have critical discourse about the issues that are going on in their community and begin to build resiliency in their ability to create a different type of future. Um, in terms of nurturing empathy, uh, I think our first line of response to that is that we need to foster empathy for people to have for themselves first, because people um, look at their economic situations, they look at their health situations, and they want to blame themselves um, for the conditions that they're in. And what we try to do is offer a systematic uh, um, intervention to, to, to look at an, an analysis of the systems that impact our lives, that we are governed by, that, that are making decisions for us, that are making decisions on behalf of our community um, to be able to, to take some of the pressure off the individual to say, um, if you haven't succeeded, it doesn't mean that you're a bad person or that you haven't done the right things. It is a systemic issue that we're dealing with. Um, I, I often reference my mother, who um, was born in 1942. She, um, she was the first in her family to go to college and, and get a degree. She ended up getting her master's. She taught for 40 years. She went to church every Sunday. She, you know, fed the, the, the hungry. She housed the, the homeless. She uh, took care of the older uh, generation. She did all the right things. Um, and... And she continues to live in, um, in debt, in financial, you know, um, discourse. It's all of the things that have challenged, you know, her um, aren't because she didn't follow the rules, um, but that the rules don't actually govern uh, fairness and justice. And that, that allows us to help people have empathy for themselves and for the situation that they're in and, and to recognize that it, it takes collective action and not just individual uh, power. Uh, where your heart is right now. Um, and is there a particular project that you're actively working on or projects that you're working on um, with SIP culture that you'd like to lift up and share with us? Um, yes, absolutely. Uh, we have, we keep plenty of projects going around here um, in this, uh, this small town of Utica. And one that, um, that really does um, have a special place in my heart is a program that we launched last summer, which is called our DigiCulture Lab, which is really an infusion of digital media and agriculture and working with young people um, with this program. And it's teaching the basic fundamentals of um, taking uh, photography, uh, videography, and um, audio storytelling in helping young people to uh, not only just tell a story, but tell their story and learn a little bit about their family's history and, and seeing the importance of it. Um, and then learning some basic uh, practices in growing their own food. And so 
for me, it's had a special, a really special place in my heart because we work with a, a small group of young people during this uh, program. And um, I think one of the biggest things that comes out of it is how they see themselves and how they see the importance of one another in, in the role that that plays in their life. And so we, you know, we began having conversations with them and that was the place that we actually started and that wasn't something that they actually expected. Um, I think that they thought that it would be just, you know, a summer camp like program. And in fact, it was something much richer and, and really deep in how, um, in how they interacted with one another. So, you know, we, we just implemented some really good um, social, social skills in having one's voice and that carried throughout that entire program. We are right now at a stage of just really thinking about what this summer looks like because as we know everything on everyone's calendar has changed essentially in the next couple of months and we just actually received a, a, a Instagram uh, message from one of the students that participated in the program last year in wanting to wanting to know you know what's what's up for the summer like what's the plan because it was something that um, that they felt that they had a place and this was a place for them in their community that you see so many things that are old buildings that are closed or dilapidated and, and felt like you know there wasn't there was nothing in Utica and I think here at SIP culture, um, the young people see something that shows like a future is actually possible. So that's a project that really, it's, it's going to stay on my heart. Um, it, it can't help but, but not do that. Um, and then, you know, not to just toss this your way, but I do want to mention it, something that does sit um, really close to my heart is um, a project that we are working on closely, um, and that's with our community advisor group. And I'd love if Carlton could actually speak a little bit about that because this is an opportunity uh, for us to really engage on that intergenerational level uh, with members of our community and including them in what, you know, what can be. Yeah, and this is, goes to actually one of the later questions about economic development um, and community development. So I'm, I'm happy to hold that uh, into that time, or I could just talk about it now and we can talk about it again later. What do you think? I think talk about it now. Sure. Um, so we're working, um, part of our work is, is we recognize the need um, to... So I've worked in the arts for a long time. I'm about 20 some odd years. I don't even remember um, as long as I've been working in the arts, uh, probably since about 1997, 98. Uh, and um, what, I'm, what I've you know, just learned is that the work of artists, the work of story, the work of, of narrative, the work of, of, of creatives is, about, um, is really about holding space for um, the wholeness of life, not just, um, you know, our work isn't as, as, um, as segmented as the world wants to, to make it. Like, like they want us to be, oh, that person is a singer or this person is a painter or this person is, the, the role of creatives is that they have, uh, they have um, a strong hold on their imagination and, and they have the ability to see things that don't exist, which is a, a, a level of prophecy uh, in, in terms of like, you know, the way that we think about our role. Um, that work isn't always valued or validated um, by systems, especially systems that, um, that, that count things in very uh, quantitative uh, frameworks. We work on more qualitative uh, frames. What is the experience? Did it, how did it make you feel? You know, what, what were you moved to think about and, and, and how are you continuing uh, to move that into action? Uh, that's the way that artists and creatives think about their work. So we recognize the need to partner with, with, with people that can count and, and, and be able to uh, translate the work that we do as creatives in community uh, and thinking about transformation, uh, uh, both in qualitative ways, but also in quantitative ways. So we partnered with uh, Imagining America, which is a consortium of colleges and universities that's based out of the University of California, Davis, uh, we're partnering with them uh, as our research partners in a um, Robert Wood Johnson funded uh, 
Interdisciplinary Research Leadership Fellowship. Uh, and that program is allowing us to look at um, the, the food and agricultural histories of Utica, Mississippi, those stories and structures, uh, and, and what, what happens as a community when we actively share uh, and recite those stories and, and gather those stories in community spaces, uh, and how does that impact our residents' ability and sense of possibility towards healthy and sustainable food futures. And so we're working with them in a research, uh, a three-year research fellowship uh, to actively engage those stories in our community uh, to both uncover the possibility based on what we already know and what has already happened and, and taken place in our community uh, and expanding that out in ways that are accessible and at the same time validating the process of storytelling as a form of, of clinical, um, clinical uh, uh, getting to a clinical framework of how we're engaging public health in our community. Uh, and so that is really important to us. And it's really, it's really expanding the way that, that people will be able to see our work uh, into areas that don't necessarily see the work of artists and creatives in the field of public health as being valid. So that's something that we're really excited about. That's incredible. How, how can we stay in touch with that project? Um, it's, you know, that project will be evolving, uh, over the next three years. We're, uh, we're just really getting into the crux of it. We're developing our community advisory group that will help to shape and ground the work in Utica, uh, and, and for it to not be an outsider's, um, research project, but that it's a project that's owned by the community and citizens of Utica, Mississippi. Um, but I would just say, stay in touch with us because this will be our work for the next three years. Uh, and it will inform uh, all of the other things that that subculture continues to develop and grow. Cool. Thank you. Um, so with this next question, you you spoke to it a little bit already, but um, I was I was reading this really beautiful interview with Toshi Reagan. It's called um, Answering the Call to Pause. And it was a reflection on the the like intentional the intentional closing. Um, like how to embrace the pandemic, the coronavirus pandemic as a opportunity to take a rest. Um, and so she was speaking about the closing of her stage adaptation of Octavia e. Butler's um, Parable of the Sower. Um, and she kind of asked or called for it to be an opportunity to be in a practice of togetherness. Like how do we forge this moment for that purpose? Um, and she also used this phrase, standing together by standing apart. I think is really beautiful. So I'm curious how this possibility resonates with you um, and in what ways is SIP culture adapting, responding in this time? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I love Toshi and um, I love the, the Octavia Butler's work. Um, um, Octavia is my favorite writer and uh, that book has a special place and Anybody who's read the book uh, can see the parallels to today uh, from, from the collapse of, of just some societal frames to um, the type of leadership that we're under. Um, as they all have a very beautiful parallel in that book. Um, and also my history with Toshi um, is that her mother, uh, Bernice uh, Johnson-Regan, um, is one of my mentors, and I've worked with her for many years, Highlander um, Center, Highlander Research and Education Center. Um, and and I, I bring that up, not to just, not to name drop, but to say that my work with um, her mother has been about standing in that pause. Uh, the place of Highlander, if you've ever been there, is a, is a, is a rural uh, getaway. It is a, um, it is a retreat for people who are thinking about justice and thinking about um, the change that needs to come to the world uh, in a very serene, historic, and, 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 and lovely, beautiful environment. Um, and the place in which that happens is around um, this beautiful round of, of, of rocking chairs. And I've sat with her mother in, in that round um, and talked about the struggle and talked about the history of, of our Southern communities and how um, in many ways we've been preparing for this moment, um, this opportunity in which the, the busyness of, of, of just busyness, you know, is, is no longer 
um, is not our immediate moment, right? It's like, I, um, I think about all the running that I've done for the last 15 years, getting on planes and hopping from here to there and speaking at this place and going to that place and, you know, and, and thinking about um, what this moment has meant in terms of forging new relationships with, with family, uh, with, with community. Um, and even though we're social distance, I mean, like in our rural community, social distancing is just the way that we live. Um, it's a kind of matter of fact because our nearest neighbor is not, you know, uh, six feet away. They're across a yard and our relationship to them is like speaking from the front yard and waving, hey, how y'all doing over there? And they speaking back and having a conversation over a distance of 100 yards is, is like, is, is every day. And it's been our, our reality for all of my existence. I remember, um, you know, as a child growing up in Utica uh, and being at my grandparents' house, how um, the way that they would see if their neighbor was home is that they would yell. And if the neighbor yelled back uh, because they couldn't see them, they would know that they were at home and then we would walk to their home. Uh, and this is, I guess this is a practice that came before they had telephones. And even though we had telephones, it was, it was uh, every time you use that phone, it cost money. So it was like easier to just go outside and yell and see if your, your neighbor was home and then walk over. Um, this moment is about uh, practicing a different type of existence. Um, I think what's really, what's really telling about this moment is how just the brief interruption of the busyness has made the Himalayas visible in India. It has, it has reduced the amount of toxicity in the air over Los Angeles. It has changed the amount of pollution in China by 25% reduced. To, I mean, the impact on the environment has been immediate and overwhelming. And, and, and you know, it's, it's decisive. If, if you didn't understand climate justice coming into this situation, you can clearly see the effects if we change our and moderate our behavior, how differently we can exist with, with the land. So I think that these are the moments for us to, to think deeply about change, about what is essential. Like this idea of essential workers has been like, that thing is blowing my mind. So it's like, who's really essential? Oh, it's the, it's the person that works at the grocery store. Oh, it's the people who fix food. Oh, it's the folks that are at the hospital. Oh, it's the people who pick vegetables. Those are the essential workers. Like the rest of these folks are like, you just, you know, you making a living, what are you making a living on? You're making a living on busyness. Uh, and what we really need are the people who care for our daily needs. Those people who provide food, those people who provide fresh water, those people who provide electricity, you know, like care. that provide care for our elders and for our children and teachers and like, you know, so that's you a beautiful. You begin to see the real value. Yeah. Like that's, that's where the value is at. I mean, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's been shown to us through how we responded as, as human beings that, you know, that we can adapt um, in ways that maybe we wouldn't have considered when we felt as though we didn't have a choice. Like the choice is, has been there, but we have always operated like, you know, we didn't have a choice. These were the circumstances. Um, and and may, maybe in some ways there were circumstances, but those circumstances quickly shifted in what felt like overnight to us. And so we're here having conversations um, and sharing stories, you know, with people in ways that we might not have done. I mean, you know, we're, we're doing this right now. Um, I mean, you know, I, I think what's interesting is like, you know, so Zoom, you know, video, it's not new, right? But the way that it is being used at like so many levels, um, just so quickly. And, and I think at one point for me, I looked at it as um, it didn't feel, it didn't feel as personal before, but all of a sudden, because this is how we're, you know, we're having to communicate. I, I feel very connected to people in a way that I, I hadn't when I've been on, you know, doing a virtual conversation. Um, so this, I mean, it's, it is really, it shows what is possible when we're, what we have left is like each other in trying to make a connection with another human being and not taking that connection for granted, you know? Um, so I mean, that's, that's how it resonates um, with me. You know, 
SIP culture, we are constantly thinking about how we're responding in this moment. And, um, and that shows up in a number of ways, some of which I just mentioned. And then Carlton was talking about, you know, being here in a rural community, we talked about story and we're talking about food as well. And so it's, it's really getting back to those basics because that's, that's what we need. It's like, you know, how are we, how are we going to eat? Do we have enough to carry us through this, this date, this end date that we actually don't know. And so, um, We've, we've just gotten back to something that has that's basic and that has been our work, which is um, which is growing food. I feel like we were we were preparing for something with our work that maybe we didn't you know we didn't know how it would be utilized. I mean, it was back in January when we were working um, in a in a greenhouse and starting to put seeds, you know, in in little tiny cups to begin growing. And initially, you know, it was you know to 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 just have food growing and to be able to share that with the community. And so we had a, a plant sale uh, just as things were kind of beginning to, to shut down and there, we weren't even sure how many people would, you know, would show up and uh, people were, were coming by just to get some plants. So they, because they felt the need um, versus it being, uh, you know, a privilege or a hobby or something of that nature. It was like, it was a necessity. Like, you know, what do you all have? And so it, it there yet in that there was conversation that came from it. Um, people wanting to, you know, asking us questions about how they could begin to grow their own food. So, and we've responded in that way. So, yeah. Yeah. So I'll just say we definitely have leaned into the agricultural side of our work over these past uh, few weeks as people feel um, the food insecurity that already existed in our community um, has been ex exacerbated. So people are like, oh, like we couldn't find bread and we couldn't find, you know, fresh produce. We couldn't find, um, you know, uh, the most essential item of all these days, toilet paper. Uh, and so we're just like, um, you know, there's, our community has a history. Um, when I was a child growing up um, and I was just having this conversation with Brandy uh, last week and, I don't think she understood, well, she said she didn't understand, like the levels of which we were producing our own mm -hmm. food as a child. Um, my grandparents had a farm and, and I would say anywhere from 80 to 90% of the food that we ate came from, from their land and from my grandfather's hands. And we rarely went to the grocery store. And that's a, that's a community um, uh, history. It's not just my grandfather's history or my history. Um, there were many producers in our community, uh, and now food is, uh, is is scarce, and it's because we traded in um, something that we knew that provided us with our daily bread for something that was uh, not reliable and unsustainable in terms of a relationship in which our labor was being extracted to other communities to make other make wealth for other individuals. Um, and at the end of the day, what we have to show for it is a dollar. Uh, and that dollar has a decreasing value uh, versus the work that my grandfather did. At the end of the day, he could show for his work um, a bucket of a, a bushel of peas or a bushel or of sweet potatoes or a truckload of watermelon that at the end of the day have the same value that they did each day because it, it's about how people gain sustenance. So that's just something that we're thinking about that goes into one of the other questions about economic development stuff. We can talk about again. So I guess kind of building off that, I mean, you've offered some examples about how currently we are, um, the current conditions are in some ways reinforcing these systemic challenges, but in some ways how we're finding alternatives and how they're actually putting light on how we can live outside of these systemic challenges. Um, and then kind of the overlay of that is really thinking how a lot of those, a lot of those systemic challenges are reinforced by our idea that we're othering each other. We're othering each other based on race. We're othering each other based on sex, based on income. Um, how can, do you see whatever the, the situation that we're currently in, addressing kind of those issues as well 
is can we potentially um can this serve as a way for us to maybe potentially embrace our own uniqueness without othering the other uh, without othering other people etc that sort of yeah I, I think um you know the, the uniqueness is um it, it's, it, it crosses all lines. There's no, um, you know, this idea of, of humanity uh, mm -hmm. is the thing that we all share. And it's, it's at the center of all of our experiences. Um, we struggle and we create these, these barriers um, that are, um, they're constructs of man uh, mm -hmm. that, that, that make us or, or force us to see people as less than ourselves so so that's the challenge right so that's the fundamental challenge is that we look on others and what we see is is not equal to us so we're like oh that person is not they're not as good as i am well they don't have this and they don't have that and i do this and and so that's the challenge and we fall into those traps all the time whether it's a, um, about gender or whether it's about politics we we find ways to make the the, the other person less than um, and it's a tool also of, of oppression. It's a tool to say, um, you know, what happens when you call uh, indigenous people savages uh, and you say that they have no God and, and they have no decency and they have no, no, no ethics. Um, then when you begin to kill them and you begin to eradicate them, you can justify it because they are not us. You know, they're not, they're not equal to us. And so that justification goes down the line. And we use that every time we're, you know, when we frame um, um, migrants as, as illegal aliens, uh, we begin to treat them as if they're from outer space. You know, we, we treat them like they don't deserve to be, to, to, to breathe the same air, to walk the same land, to drink the same water. So that's the fundamental challenge that we have to get away from. And the way that we think about, the way that I think about that, and, and Brandy can speak for herself, um, is that I am incomplete if I can't see a part of myself in you. Like, like, the, like the, the uniqueness that you hold also holds a key for me to unlock parts of myself that I, that I haven't discovered yet. And so uh, that's, so, so that's the, the, the commonality that I like to think about this work from. Is there a person that I cannot see a part of myself in? Um, I, I haven't found that person yet in the world that I can't, that I don't share some similarities with. And so the uniqueness is about um, an exploration of, of identity and, and cultural heritage and, and cultural practice. And those things help me to learn more about myself. They're not things that, that my, my, my de I'm not defined by what you're not. I'm defined by the things that you show me that I wasn't able to see in myself. And, and that helps me to craft and, 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 and develop a deeper sense of humanity that relies on you to make me whole. And, and so that's the way that I think about uh, these ideas of, of divisiveness and othering is that I need you to, for me to be complete. And so when we think about the history um, of, of this country. Um, this country's history is, is incomplete because there's only one part of the story that's being told, that has been told, that has been validated. Uh, and, and the other parts of the story are relegated as, um, as the second and third act. They're not the, first, they're not the main characters, they're the supporting characters. Uh, and so the more we see this as an ensemble, as we're all playing a part and we have something to add to, to this character development, to the character of the story, um, then we're going to be challenged. So I have a quick question. Uh, based on the thing you said about uniqueness, I was thinking, why did you choose the name Sip Culture? Is it because of Mississippi? Is it the German word for extended family? What's the root of it? Oh, we didn't know about the German word for extended yeah. family, but that's a good one. Thank you. Please, please send that to us so we can add that to the lexicon. Uh, sip culture comes from Mississippi and this idea. So, so Mississippi is known for, um, you know, a lot of people say like the ultimate thing to be in Mississippi is to sit on the front porch and, and sip some sweet tea. Um, and so we think about sipping culture, the idea that we're, we are, um, 
Mississippi, this SIPP is, is the framework for our state, for our understanding, and that is about the culture, one, the culture that we're creating, and we think about that porch time as an opportunity to, to talk about our stories, to share with each other, to grow together. Um, but yeah, it's just, uh, it was a, it was a, we thought that Mississippi Center for Cultural Production was just too much to say. <laughs> Every time we want to talk about our organization and self-step culture became a really catchy, catchy space. I guess going back to kind of the uh, idea of, uh, between of like economic development versus cultural development, community development, um, you talked about in some respect how there's kind of a quantitative and a qualitative aspect where kind of cultural development can bring in that qualitative where economic development or even public health are largely quantitatively based. Um, are there other ways that you see kind of these these kind of areas, these silos, um, to some extent, diverging, converging, and how can cultural development um, kind of break those silos, as you kind of referenced before? Yeah, I don't see them as, I, I don't see economic development and cultural development as, as different things. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I'll go, as, as Nita was saying, back to, uh, back to the root form of the word economy, um, which is about the management of the household. Uh, and if we think about our communities as an extension of our households, as many households together, how do we manage the many households together? And that's the economy. Economy, to me, does not mean market shares or, or the you know, stock market or you know, the, the GDP or any of those things. I think that that's a, that's a um, perversion of the idea of managing managing a community or managing household, um, it gets dwindled down to um, these these dollars or, or what that means and, and the value of that thing. Um, but when we talk about when we talk about managing our communities, um, this cultural development, the way that we think about managing our resources and our skills, all evolve out of the culture that we have and the way that we treat each other, um, and so. The culture of a community, to me, dictates the type of economic development that, that will happen. Uh, and, and in our community and many other communities like ours, I think our community is, is the rule and not the exception. Our economies are managed by people who don't live in our community. Um, they're managed by people who don't share our experiences, um, don't know the community, don't know the neighborhood, don't really know the people or the assets or uh, the, the, the uniqueness that exists in this space in which people live together, they worship together, they, they, their kids go to school together, they, um, they, you know, they, all of these things that they do together, but the responsibility uh, or the, the ability to, to, to have uh, the agency to make the decisions about what happens within that community actually rests in, in, in another community. And that's a fundamental issue. That's the fundamental challenge that we're dealing with. So when we talk about uh, economic development and cultural development, for me, uh, the challenge that we're trying to uh, work on with SIP culture is to get the community thinking about itself and all the decisions that it needs to be making on behalf of, its, of itself uh, and, 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 and question what decisions it doesn't have the power to make and then begin to think about why and who does make those decisions, and how to um, shift our cultural framework into policy uh, frames that we can then uh, hold the people who do make decisions on our, uh, based on our, for our community, hold them accountable to the needs that we have as a community. But that takes collective voice. That can't be done as an individual. I can't go and just advocate on behalf of the 4,500 citizens of the 39175 zip code and say, this is what we need, this is what we need, this is what we need. That is a community conversation that has to happen. Uh, this idea of community-engaged design is where we rest our work as an organization, is that the work that we do is informed by the community that we are part of and that they're engaged in the, in the active design of our community futures. Uh, and so we're really excited about this opportunity to have conversations, for those conversations to inform us about what people's needs are, for us to then have analysis about why those needs are being met or are not being met, who's responsible for those needs being met, 
And then to hold those people accountable to say, this is as a community, this is what we need. Apparently you're the one who have the ability to make these decisions. You either going to make these decisions that we need, or you're not going to be in that position anymore. We need to be, have someone else in that position that does understand the community. So. I was going to say, um, when you talk about the community engaged design, um, when you include people in the conversation, um, one of the things that begins to surface together is we begin to see the assets that we already have that maybe haven't been clearly identified because we haven't thought about it that way. And, you know, and once we do, then we begin to understand what power that we already own um, collectively. And then we look at how we can use that power to, you know, like, to determine our conditions and, like, and, and kind of chart a path in that direction. Thank you. Um, so you, you, you spoke to this a little bit already, and I'm almost wondering if I want to complicate the question a little bit, but I'll pose it and see if I want to do that. Um, so a couple days ago, I was listening into this live stream on HowlRound, um, and it was titled, It Was Always Possible Centering the Leaders Who Were Here All Along, um, this series organized in response to the coronavirus pandemic. Um, and it lifted up leadership of cultural organizers who were working in rural contexts who practice disability justice and transmedia event accessibility, which um, in, a re in really layman's terms is just thinking more broadly about being here and what being here is. So can you, in addition to having people be present in an event, also have them online? Um, and then also folks who are indigenous or two-spirit. And both Ashley Hansen and Claudia Alex shared, for example, the fact that rural cultural workers have had to always be creative about ways of connecting across distance, and which you spoke to already. Um, so what do you see as the role of rural cultural organizers in supporting, mentoring, or influencing cultural work and the field of community and cultural development now and moving forward? Great question. Um, and I'll, um, I think this is an opportunity to talk about um, the wonderful Ashley Hansen, uh, who's one of, our, uh, one of our advisors for a program that we've started called the Rural Performance Production Lab. Uh, and that is, um, it, we call it the ripple effect. And the idea is that it's, it's an opportunity for us as an organization to build an institution that supports rural artists in telling rural stories. And those stories are intended to inform um, a, a public about rural life from the people who live mm -hmm. it. Again, this is an opportunity for us to um, take ownership uh, and agency over our stories. I think about Mississippi a lot, and I think about the stories that I hear nationally about, about our state. Uh, and, and Mississippi is a, is a primarily rural um, state. Uh, most of those stories are told from people who are not Mississippi. They're not rural. They don't live that experience. And so their experience is as an outsider um, speaking about something that they've witnessed, but they, have, uh, they don't have the same context for that people of the people that live it. And so we've, we're developing the Rural Performance Production Lab as a way for us to help support and create a home for rural artists that need space in a rural context to develop rural stories. Uh, and we see that as important to influencing uh, a national conversation that, that is complicated by having rural people in those spaces talking about rural narratives. Um, and not just rural as an afterthought, but rural as a, um, a very important uh, part of the fabric of this country's history and future. Um, you know, uh, I have to rem remind people that there are no um, there are no soybean fields growing in Manhattan. Um, that, that the food that you enjoy comes from a rural community and there are rural people uh, that, are, that their livelihoods are deeply connected to uh, nurturing that food, preparing that food, processing that food, and getting that food to places where it can be consumed. Um, and it's not just about food, it's other aspects of rural culture um, that directly influence um, urban, urban living. Uh, that are not always uh, acknowledged. And so for me, that's not an opportunity for us to say, you know, you got to respect us because we do this for you, but to say, hey, we're in a relationship together. Don't, don't discount the relationship because you don't have relationship. Don't discount the relationship because it's 
many way, in many ways invisible, that, that that thread that binds us together, you take it as a convenience that you go into a store and the thing is there on the shelf without recognizing um, all the hands that have touched it, all the bodies that have, you know, that have been a part of the sacrifice to make sure that you have that whatever thing that it is that you need. And so for us, that's our reality. We, we recognize those people as humans and as our neighbors and as a, a collective community of producers. Uh, and so for us, we're really interested in, in finding out how to expand that uh, and bringing more of those voices of the practitioners, of the producers, uh, of those rural people into spaces so that they can inform, um, inform the conversation about its wholeness, not just about what's happening in the urban spaces, but what's happening in all of our spaces and how what's happening here impacts what happens to you over there and vice versa. And so Ashley is helping us think through some of those things. <laughs> is Ashley part of SIP culture or is she from another organization? Ashley is from um, um, rural Minnesota and mm -hmm. uh, she, she came down uh, and has been part of our work and helping us think through how to develop this rural lab. She's a theater maker uh, in, uh, in rural Minnesota. So I guess um, a little while ago, you actually talked about kind of where you all started kind of in the um, late 90s, 97, 98, I think you said. Um, so with a lot of other um, people that I've talked with who have also worked in this field of community cultural development, um, a lot of them reference kind of this history, uh, this more recent history of the field that goes back to you know the 1980s and 1990s when you have the rise of um, the far right um, and very like neoliberalism, pure capitalism going on. And so um, by 1996, 1997, you see huge cuts in the, uh, the National Endowment for the Arts, um, even, uh, even a lot of private arts funding. Um, and this really influenced the field in general, particularly um, a lot of minority organizations in particular closed down during that time. Um, and I, you still see a lot of that today. Um, uh, you see, you know, kind of how do how are we supposed to measure um, the arts in a quantitative way, or how do we show our impact? Um, this sort of mentality. Um, what has been your experience with kind of this broader field, um, and what what's hope do you see for the future? Wow, that's a great question. Um, yeah, this, this may take a minute. This is a very uh, <laughs> expansive question, Yaks. Um, when I came into Alternate Roots as a member, um, and Alternate Roots, uh, for those of you that don't know, is um, a member service organization that was founded in 1976 uh, at the Highlander Research and Education Center um, for, by theater artists who were interested in understanding how the work that they were doing uh, coming out of the Vietnam era and the civil rights era and the anti-war movement and all of these other things, how they would continue to use um, their voice and their institutions, uh, mostly theater companies, as a way to influence uh, social change in the, in the U.S. South. And to have a voice, uh, much like the work that we're talking about with subculture, making sure that rural artists are at national tables to influence cultural policy. They were interested in understanding how Southern artists could have a space to influence cultural policy um, uh, across the country. And Bob Leonard is one of the original founders of, of that organization. Um, he was with the Road Company out of uh, Carson uh, City, uh, Tennessee, uh, Johnson City, uh, Carson, John, Johnson City, uh, the Tennessee, I think, yes. Something like that. Um, but um, so, so coming into that organization in um, the early 2000s, 2001, um, there was a lot of talk about this moment that you speak about in the late 90s in which the culture wars actually, you know, kind of launched officially um, and the NEA and, and these different foundations began to respond differently. Uh, and the impact of, of the changes in the NEA meant that many of the black theaters, the Latino spaces, um, they began to, to shutter their doors. What's really interesting is that many of those spaces um, were, were recent in their development and came because of, of expansion arts program at the NEA that happened, um, you know, a decade or so uh, prior to that. 
So these were organizations that were developed as a, a response uh, to the NEA recognizing that there, there needs to be more diversity in the national arts um, um, cultural um, infrastructure ecosystem. But, but I like to go back before that um, and think about when arts um, were no longer in service of the community that they came from um, as, as the, as the, as the, you know, the point of, 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 you know, that's, that to me is this junction point in which art becomes um, a product uh, of, of, of capital. It becomes something that's to be consumed versus something that is helping to uh, help a culture or a community understand itself. Uh, and, and the commodification of the cultural practice is where, uh, is where the change took place initially. And I can't blame that on the NEA or on private philanthropy, but on um, this idea that certain, um, certain performances or artists or creative works were there to entertain those who had the means to purchase and, and commodify them. So that to me is, is, is the breaking point. So the hope for me is in moments in which the ones that we're living right now, in which artists are producing as a bomb for the community, as, as, as healing, as a space for people to connect to their own humanity, for them to connect uh, to uh, a sensibility of, um, of emotional intelligence. In this moment of loss, in this moment of disconnection, artists are finding ways to unite people in, in ways that they've never been united before. Um, I, I think about uh, the DJ D-Nice, who I remember from the late 80s, uh, who used to be with Boogie Down Productions. Um, and uh, I remember him specifically from the movie, I'm Gonna Get You Sucker, in which he was with, um, um, he was with uh, KRS-One, and they were rapping outside, you know, and he had his turntable on his little, you know, he you know, had it with him like a little drummer. Um, he just offered a digital um, dance party and DJed for literally hundreds of thousands of people virtually through Instagram. And, and everybody was showing up and they would say, oh, did you see D-Nice last night? And he was, you know, and, and so this artist who, who was using music uh, and this social platform to create a virtual dance party for, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of people were on that and they've done it night after night. And now you have more DJs who are creating these platforms and doing, you know, it's creatives who are holding us together and keeping us sane in these moments of insanity. Um, and, and they're not all asking for money or saying that this is, my, this is my work and I need to be paid for this. They're saying, this is my passion, this is my power, and I have the ability to impact the world, and this is my gift back to the world. And so that's the hope. The hope is that artists see themselves deeply connected to community, to community health and wellness, to uh, crafting a different narrative. In a time of, of scarcity, we create uh, abundance. Um, that's just the role and that's what we do. Uh, in a time in which people are imagining uh, uh, the end of the world, um, we're celebrating the birth of a new one, right? And that's the kind of beauty and creativity and imagination. You know, I share, um, I share that hope that, um, that artists will, will see um, themselves as that, that piece of connectivity. Um, but I also, you know, have the hope that folks that maybe don't see themselves as artists yet, um, will see what artists do and see the artist that's already in them and that that is not defined, um, by any, um, any social constructs. Um, I see, um, I see reality that artists are like the thread that holds the fabric together. You know, we as humans, like we are that fabric, but artists, it's, it's weaving that together um, and holding it and, and keeping it in place. So, you know, I share that hope and, um, and I, you know, I hope that that is something that, that we can all begin to see connectivity and be on the same page. Yeah, that was beautiful. And thank you for this time to have conversation. Thank you, Brandy and Carlton, uh, for the chance to hear 
and learn more about your work and for the inspiration that you have brought to this conversation. And thank you to our interviewers, Sarah Lyon Hill, Netta Moyarian, and Courtney Sermonek uh, for guiding us through the conversation. You've been listening to Trustees Without Borders interview with Brandy and Carlton Turner, currently co-leading SIP Culture in Utica, Mississippi. I'm your host, Andy Morikawa. Trustees Without Borders is a podcast production of the Virginia Tech Institute for Policy and Governance. Trustees Without Borders features leading practitioners, thinkers, writers, and designers all working to strengthen community capacity for innovation and creative change. You can find an archive of Trustees Without Borders interviews and other information at our website, www.ipg.vt.edu. Until next time, remember that as trustees of community, especially in this time of virus, we are called to work without borders or limits on our ideas and aspirations, without borders on what we think is possible to solve problems that keep us from achieving a just, inclusive community that works for us all.